The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. The year is 1767, and Claire and Jamie Frazier are strangers in a new world. On a return trip from the Caribbean, the Frasers and their family are swept up in a hurricane and crash land on the shores of Georgia in the American colonies. In this moment, their hopes of a quieter life, growing old in Scotland after years of being separated from one another, are swept away. Instead, they're going to find themselves the newest residents of a powder keg, less than a decade from exploding. Here in the colonies, revolution is on the horizon. Claire, her and Jamie's daughter Brianna, and her husband Roger are all time travelers from the 1960s, very aware of the combustible nature of their circumstances in the British-run colonies. But this world that the Frasers have arrived in and decide to build a new home in isn't just one on the brink of war. It's a world in which we would recognize very little of our own. From the wreckage of their ship in Georgia, Blair and Jamie will migrate to Charleston in South Carolina and eventually to Wilmington, a port town in the southeastern corner of North Carolina. It's in Wilmington that the Frasers get their first glimpse of what their lives might be like in America, making the fateful acquaintance of Royal Governor William Tryon, who helps them secure land through a perilous allegiance to the British Crown, before they chart a path to their new home on the western side of the colony. For so many travelers in the 1700s, Wilmington was a harbor, and for the Frasers, it's going to be an anchor that constantly pulls them back as they start to put down roots in North Carolina. During their many visits to Wilmington, the Frasers are going to experience some of their most joyous moments as a family, but they'll also have to endure some of their most trying times as the cruelty of the colonial era and its justice system comes to bear in tragic ways. Hello, and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a new podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history 
of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director of the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents, we're exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander, the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon, and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie. Together, the Frasers land in the American colonies on the eve of the Revolutionary War and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. If you've watched or read the Outlander series, you might recall just how important a backdrop Wilmington has played for some of the Frasers' defining moments. First and foremost, it was the entry point for thousands of Scottish Highlanders in the 1700s, as we discussed in last week's episode. But for Claire and Jamie specifically, it is where they first make a plan for their future in the colonies, meeting men like George Washington and Royal Governor William Tryon. Perhaps most profoundly, though, it's where they reunite with their daughter Brianna, who was raised in the 20th century and will first become handfast to her own husband, Roger, after their reunion in town. Gabaldon and the creators of the Stars TV series were pretty clever in how they threaded specific historical touches into the Wilmington they put on the page and on screen, pulling in real figures and true events that would have been on the minds of this region's residents. For this episode, we're going to explore some of those historical flourishes that offer a window into the past and a look at a Wilmington that was central to North Carolina's role in the colonies. We're also going to be taking a cue from one of the first shots of the series' fourth season on Stars, the first to be set in America. At the beginning of this season, we are first introduced to Wilmington through the image of a noose hanging from wooden gallows in the heart of town, a striking acknowledgement of the cruel and unusual punishment that defined the early years of this country. Pulling directly from events in the series, we're going to unpack the barbaric state of justice in the colonial period, something that would have been carried out right here on the grounds of what is now the Bergwin Wright House. Because where I work today wasn't always a grand mansion. For most of Wilmington's colonial period, this was the city's first jail, built in 1744 where the whipping post, the stocks and pillories, the dungeon, and the gallows were just some of the ways the British crown sought to keep its subjects in line. The Frasers couldn't always count on justice to swing in their favor. So what can Outlander teach us about the colonial pursuit of law and order? And how did it all play out in Wilmington, a town very much on the cusp of a revolution. Those are the questions we're going to answer today on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander 
in the Cape Fear. Episode 2, Crime and Punishment. To talk about early Wilmington and the colonial justice system, I'm joined today by Christine Lamberton, Museum Director for the Berglund Wright House and Gardens, and my colleague. Christine, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start out by talking about Wilmington and something people would have seen in the early episodes of season four. You know, you and I live in Wilmington. Our ears always perk up when we hear Wilmington because we're interested in how it's being depicted. So, As I was preparing for the podcast, I came to realize that so much happens to the Frasers in Wilmington. And so we're going to talk about early Wilmington today and how it's seen on screen and what it would have been like in person. But before we do that, we kind of have to start where the show starts, which is with the first opening image of the Frasers' American journey. And it's a noose. It is hanging in the center of town in Wilmington, and it's going to be the start of a sequence where they see their friend Gavin executed for killing the husband of his lover. Now, this is an early peek into the colonial justice system, and you and I come from a pretty unique stance on talking about this because we work at the site of Wilmington's first jail. So can you tell our listeners about the city jail and what it was? Yeah, so the city jail was located on the corner of 3rd and Market, which was on the outskirts of town. Past 3rd Street would have been farmland, and there would have been two blocks on either side of 3rd Street, and that was it. You were three blocks by six blocks wide. That was a small colonial port city. The jail was made out of ballast stones, and that was the first thing I noticed visually about the opening scene. It reminded me of, of a town you would have seen in the mountains or maybe in the north, the architecture, the colors, the muddy streets. You're talking about coastal colonial port here in the south. So you're going to have a lot of ballast stone as a foundation for most of the homes that would have been what we call Georgian architecture. You want to catch that breeze. The jail itself was made out of two feet of stone, and that is what the Bergen Wright House sits upon right now, currently. There would have been three buildings, uh, the jailer's quarters, the sheriff's office that also housed the cages, the dungeon, and the debtor cells. And they would have sat on a acre of property. It would have been a compound that would have housed um, other forms of punishment and housing. So when this season is opening, you see the gallows, what seems like in the streets of Wilmington. And you and I have spoken that, you know, just visually, we kind of see that as Market Street, where the house sits today, that main drag that came up from the river. But the gallows are in the streets. That wouldn't have been really how it would have been. It would have been on our site, would it not have? In Wilmington, yes, the gallows would have been on our city jail compound. Uh, The gallows would have been able to be accessed by the public. It would have been in plain view. So they do get that right, that people would have gathered and watched the hangings and the punishments. But in our case, we had a very specific area on the compound. And I think it's interesting to remind people that there was a component of visibility. They wanted you to see public hangings. The crowd that is gathered around Jamie and Claire in that opening scene would have been accurate. I mean, they would have invited people, families to come see this as a means of deterrent. Absolutely. And the corner of 3rd and Market traditionally been one of the busiest intersections. And as Wilmington grows, and especially when Jamie and Claire find themselves in Wilmington in 1767, 
Wilmington is growing. Uh, the church is being, you know, it's built across the street. You're starting to see Wilmington expand and it would have become the center of town. So people would have walked by the gallows, the stocks and pillories regularly. And again, public humiliation, public execution was seen at the time as a form of deterrent and warning. It's a, a heck of a reminder to stay in line. And that's that's really what this was because we think of maybe this era's punishment as gallows, but there were far more things that could be sentenced as a punishment and more things were going to get you sent to the jail. I mean, there's a lot of different things that we might not think of today as crimes, but would have been sentenceable offenses in this time. Absolutely. So, of course, the traditional crimes, murder, rape, stealing, would have sent you to the city jail. And like I said, there are different areas on the jail that would have housed prisoners for different crimes. So if you stole petty crimes, you had you know, jail cells for that. We have what we call the dungeon for your more grievous crimes. But things we touched upon earlier, vulgar language, gossip. I mean, we talked about and we joked that Claire would have been sentenced to death very early on in the first episode because of the way she speaks, um, her knowledge of medicine, speaking against somebody of a higher standing, like John Bergwin, for instance, who works for the governor. You speak ill of John Bergwin, you're speaking against the governor, you're speaking against the crown. And that is seen not as just petty gossip, but as a threat to the crown. It's called upon several times in the show and in the books and just watching the series that Claire is of a different time. She comes with a different vernacular. She is going to have a different sense of what she can and cannot say in society. And going back to this period, it's the colonial justice system that she would be facing in how she's interacting with people around her. And they would have certainly taken notice, especially here in Wilmington being a smaller town. Especially when she um, blasphemy, yeah. you know, dropping uh, vulgar language left and right, I absolutely would have sent her to the city jail. Now, we know the crimes, but there are also going to be the punishments. So what kind of punishments would have been carried out on the jail site here in Wilmington? Our sources indicate that there were jail cells where you would have been held until the judge, the traveling judge at this time, would have come and sentenced you. Again, petty crime, stocks and pillory, possibly nailing your ear to the stocks like is seen in one of the episodes. An early season episode, right? Correct. A young boy who stole some bread instead of cutting off his hand. His ear is nailed to the stocks. Whipping, which you could rent by the hour to punish your indentured servants and your slaves. There would have also been a dunking booth. Our sources indicate that in 1766, R. John Bergwin was part of a committee, along with the sheriff and another gentleman, to come up with a new form of punishment for women. Because traditionally, women were not put in the stocks and pillory. So they found a way of punishing women through a dunking booth in the Cape Fear River, which was at the docks at the foot of Market Street. So getting creative with their punishments there. Yeah, spending their time wisely. Now, speaking of punishments in the river, uh, fans of the show, and, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the end of season five, our chief villain, Stephen Bonnet, who we're going to do a whole episode about in the coming weeks, about who he was and who inspired him. But his story ends by being sentenced by the Wilmington Committee of Safety to death by drowning, which is symbolic because he's a pirate, a smuggler who is afraid of drowning. But I'm curious, would death by drowning, which is carried out as someone tied to a post at the right height so that the high tide rises and overcomes them and drowns them, is that a punishment that we know of being carried out here in Wilmington? No, no source indicate that. 
Um, I believe through your research, you found that it was done in Europe or Cambodia, but not here, not in Wilmington, not in North America that we can see. It's a, yeah, it's a very specific punishment and seems kind of appropriate because we're here in a port town by a river. But I think visually it was a bit more creative than they were here in, uh, in the Wilmington area. So let's talk about different treatment of different people because the colonial justice system is going to favor the rich, the connected, and it's going to disproportionately hurt those who aren't any of those things, the poor in society, the non-white members of society. Do we know what the conditions were like for those of color, um, whether they were freed or enslaved on the site? As a matter of fact, we do. They commission uh, a cage outside completely vulnerable to the elements to segregate black, free, and enslaved prisoners. Um, so they were segregating them. This whole system is, again, really protecting those in power and those who have connections and wealth. And so we talked about a traveling judge coming through. He could be bribed. Um, if you have money, you have a jailer who might be taking some of the money made by those uh, in the debtor cells to kind of pad his own pockets. And then there's other forms of getting out of uh, these punishments. So what would the conditions have been like if you were rich versus if you were poor? I tell our visitors that this jail was absolutely used to punish the poor. Being in debt was a crime. Let's think about who is stealing food. People who have lost everything mm -hmm. through a hurricane, through a bad season, people who are hungry, people who need help. This is a period in time when there's no assistance for people who have lost their livelihood. Say you're injured, say you lose a limb, you can no longer farm you become indebted and at the mercy of others. There's no assistance in terms of our formal government assistance for that. And so it's definitely punishing people who are, are poor. You know, it's not just people who have gambling debts who end up in. Now, if you have money, um, you're above that. You can pay a fee to stay within the city bounds. Um, there's something called prison bounds where you could pay or depending on your status, as long as you stay within a certain block radius, you don't actually have to stay in the city jail. You can actually rent accommodations or continue working. So it's all about your means. And again, some crimes don't apply to the wealthy. John Berguin speaks ill of someone or, you know, and I use our John Berguin because of his status, but say he strikes a farmer's daughter. That's not a, pun that's, that's not a crime. Now, a farmer strikes... I don't know, John Berguin's daughter. Absolutely. That's a crime. If you come and visit our site, we always introduce our guests to Jacob, who is in our dungeon, which would have been another place where people would have been kept. And we always tell people that he stole a horse, which doesn't seem like a huge crime, but he's stealing it from someone who's wealthy. And that kind of trickles down in terms of punishment. Uh, it's not going to advance up if, if someone were to steal this man's horse. Absolutely. We, we stress on people that it's not so much the crime in, in many cases. It's who is the crime committed against. Well, and you see that in Outlander. I mean, their friend, Gavin, at the beginning of season four is being punished. He killed someone, but they are not the highest members of society. Jamie and Claire are certainly going to start walking in those circles as we start to advance into their American story. But they're not the, the highest members of society, so it's going to be a death sentence for some of them in this circle. I mean, let's face it, Jamie and Claire kill people left and right. They do, they do, they do, they do. Um, well, one thing that might save you if you are facing a death sentence is something that uh, became known as the as the neck verse, but it was 
initially known as the benefit of clergy. So on the day of sentencing, if you can read a specific verse from the Bible, uh, which would be Psalms 51, they would save you from a death sentence. You're going to be sentenced to something else, I assume. But this actual verse reads, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So what might this get you in this time period? Is it literally saving your neck? In many cases, yes. Um, now, we don't see examples specifically here in Wilmington of this, but in, in religious communities, this would have gotten you a lesser uh, sentence. Um, there's an author I was reading when I was doing some research who points out that clearly Wilmington is not too concerned about um, religion and people's um, souls, essentially, in the early days when you consider the jail is built out of stone in 1744 and there's no church in sight. Uh, until, you know, years later. In many communities, this could have saved you from death. Yeah. And and you have to keep in mind that here in Wilmington would be quite different than, say, up north in a smaller community where religion is a bit more rigid and fervent. I mean, one crime that you might see there is disobeying the Sabbath, idleness, you know, laziness, all these things that are even more restrictive on society at the time. So, when we think about Claire and Jamie walking into America and their whole family, they're walking into a very, very restrictive community. And again, they are trailblazers in what they are doing in most cases. That's going to draw attention and it would certainly have gotten most people a trip to this jail. Absolutely. And you see this when you look at the early episodes in Scotland and then you see the later episodes in Wilmington and in North Carolina. There's Even there, there's a difference in the religious fervent and you're really more at the mercy of the priest in Scotland than you were in North Carolina. Well, and, and as they say, the American colonies was a melting pot of all different things. So you're pulling from so many different countries and communities that are bringing their own ideals of what is and what is not a crime. Now, as we move past the American Revolution and we start to think of ourselves as forming a better union, a country, do we take these cruel crime and punishment tactics with us into this new era? Yes. We could argue that the Bill of Rights was the foundation for a better justice system. Absolutely. They talk about uh, due process, a jury of your peers, no cruel and unusual punishment. However, that's up to interpretation. They don't stop mm -hmm. capital punishment. They don't stop treating prisoners poorly. It's just... It's up to interpretation what cruel and unusual means. Well, and as I just said, you're pulling from so many different places, and that's not going to change right after the war because all of these states have to buy into the Union. So North Carolina is going to have its own idea of all these things until it becomes part of the United States uh, in 1789, I believe. And correct? Correct. And you can, you can argue that the states today don't agree. Exactly. Very true. And so, yeah, some of these conditions are going to carry over now. At our site specifically, the jail moves away in 1769. And so it's been there for uh, around 25 years, a good quarter century, a good chunk of Wilmington's colonial era. And from this jail, uh, a man who Christine has mentioned a few times, John Bergwin, is going to build a home on top of it. So let's kind of expand our view from just the jail to Wilmington as a whole. How would you describe this next era of the site for guests and for listeners? Well, John Burgoyne was a royal official. He was the private secretary to Governor Dobbs, who was the governor right before Tryon. And his position as a private secretary is the same position that you see Edmund Fanning in the show hold for Governor Tryon. 
Um, so you're entering an era of politics on the site, a site that is used for entertainment and, and policy making. Uh, we understand very important people would have been in that home, um, the governors, the secretaries, and so forth. So a lot of the players you see in the show were actually close associates of John Berguin in real life, like him and Fanning. I have to admit, I got very exciting, excited when I saw his character on Outlander, even though he's a villain in, in Outlander and possibly and arguably in history. Yeah. Um, but he was the godfather of John Berguin's eldest son. John Berguin worked for Governor Tryon. He was elected or promoted to superior court um, by Governor Tryon. And later on, he worked for the third governor that you'll hear later on in the series, uh, Governor Martin. So John Berguin was part of that society yeah. that you see depicted in Outlander. Well, and, and Edmund Fanning, for those who are trying to rack their brain on exactly who was he, um, you'll remember when Claire and Jamie go to the theater in Wilmington uh, in the middle of season four, he is the man that Claire performs hernia surgery on in the theater. And now it's, Christine and I were talking in our office that it's actually really funny that in this version of history through the series, um, had Claire not done that, he likely would not have been the godfather to John's son, John Fanning Bergwin, because he's born during the revolution. And so Claire actually benefits the Bergwin family uh, by doing this hernia surgery. And I know, Christine, you watch this show kind of hoping that that John Bergwin's going to kind of walk around the corner because he likely would have been at all these functions that Claire and Jamie are at with Tryon and Fanning and all these people. He would have actually been at that theater. He would have sat on the same row as Governor Tryon and Fanning. We could argue that uh, Jamie took his seat <laughs> or would have been on the other side. Um, he would have been at Jocasta's wedding. He would have been part of the conversation. So as a historian, you know, depicting my side and obviously being a little fangirl of my own site. <laughs> I watched the wedding and I'm imagining John Bergwin being one of the guests. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to, to the credit of the TV series and, and Diana Gabaldon, you can't fit every historical figure in there. But the Bergwin Wright House, if you come and visit it today, is Wilmington's oldest and largest historic site. So you're going to be able to see half of what is left of Colonial Wilmington on our site between John's 1770 house and our three 1744 jail buildings. And so we get to tell the colonial Wilmington story that Outlander's doing through historical fiction on television and through Diana Gabaldon's books. Now, speaking of, of that uh, theater scene, which was really fun for a few reasons. One, they meet George Washington. And I think that is just to throw in some fun characters that people are going to absolutely recognize. He would not have been here at this time. He comes uh, after the war, correct? He comes uh, for his southern campaign after he's elected president. Yeah. Yes. It's in 1791, correct? Correct. Yeah, and so George Washington would not have been here as a pre-revolutionary figure, but it's fun to see kind of familiar faces like that. At that theater, though, I found it particularly fun because they're seeing a play that William Tryon, who we're going to talk about um, in just a few weeks in a whole episode about his whole history and his palace in New Bern, he says that they are there to see a play written by a Wilmington son, and he's actually referencing a real play that they do produce in that scene, kind of in the background. Uh, it's called The Prince of Parthia, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. It's by a gentleman named Thomas Godfrey, and Thomas Godfrey is actually buried a block from where we work. He's buried in the St. James uh, graveyard, and it says on his gravestone, that he produced this play, which is considered to be the first play written and staged in the American colonies. And so it's those little tidbits that really give Wilmington some character 
that they didn't really have to, but it, it adds some, some interesting historical, as I said at the top of the episode, flourishes that you and I and people who know Wilmington and enjoy Wilmington history really just find fascinating. One thing that I want to kind of address, though, is I talked to fans who were excited about this podcast, who know Wilmington, but they don't really see the Wilmington that they know reflected on the series. But what would Wilmington have kind of looked like in this early period as the colonies are starting to mature, uh, the jail is starting to build up on our site? What kind of Wilmington would Claire and Jamie have walked into? So I tell our visitors that if you look at our site and the house next to it, those are five of the eight structures left, colonial structures. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice they're all elevated on the ballast stone. They're white, uh, made out of wood, and they've got that Georgian architecture that helps with lighting and ventilation. That's the colonial Wilmington that they would have walked into. Sandy, watery soil, you had streams going through the city that were large enough to navigate by small vessel. Mm-hmm. It would have constantly been wet and damp. The The streets would have been sandy, watery, the streams would have swelled after heavy rain, which during some of the seasons would have been on a daily basis. The streets were also wider. The Saudi maps that we have indicate that the main streets, Market and Third, the main avenues were much, much wider, um, what we would consider four lanes today. Oh, wow. So, yeah, what you're seeing on, on screen and, and what's being described in the books is, is a version of Wilmington. I was also excited by the way they depicted the jail. Not that it was reflective of what the jail in Wilmington would have looked like during this era, but because it showed different versions of jails. A jail didn't necessarily have to be a formal place. In the opening scene, you see Steve Bonnet in what looks like the back of a warehouse. Yeah, with Gavin when he's um, when Jamie and Gavin are talking. Exactly, and there's a shackled in the back of a dark room, um, something informal. And as a matter of fact, when our jail is decommissioned and relocated a block away, uh, they mentioned that it was a former warehouse. So Wilmington is actually pretty well captured. I mean, obviously there's some logistical things that, again, they're having to recreate Wilmington in Scotland. We'll give them a pass on not creating a four-lane highway for uh, downtown Wilmington, but... It does reflect a lively, bustling town, one that, as you said, is going to be very sandy, um, very wet, uh, and it's going to be an interesting place for Claire and Jamie to get their first real long take on the Americas. They obviously come through Georgia and Charleston first, but Wilmington's a very interesting case because there's going to be a lot of history, both American history and Fraser history, that's going to happen in Wilmington. Um, Christine, when people come to our site today, what kind of things are they going to be able to see and what kind of history are we going to be able to talk about with them? Because it's going to be this, this this interesting kind of cohabitation between colonial justice and colonial life. When they visit our site, they'll be able to see all four structures, the three 1744 jail buildings, the original compound that we interpret as what the space used to house, and the 1770 house. Um, the house is going to be a great example of the higher society that John Bergwin entertained, like Governor Tryon, Emmon Fanning, and then later on, Claire and Jamie. I think of River Run and how that's depicted in Jocasta's home, which is very lavish and has beautiful furnishing and art. That is what John Bergwin's house looks like. But then we touch on who built the house, who worked the house, the enslaved people who lived and worked on the property, and of course, the people who were incarcerated Uh, fairly or unfairly, and and how the colonial justice system treated those who were housed there. And we have exhibits in in our exhibit hall about the enslaved people. We have found through research with staff members 
all the names that we can find of the enslaved workers that were owned by the Bergwin family on the site, but also the Wright family that comes after them. And so you're going to get a peek into those who would have been enslaved on the property and through those families that owned the property. And you'll get a peek into what uh, the role of women would have been in different classes in that society. So we offer a, a good variety of information that if you're looking to kind of walk in the footsteps of Claire and Jamie, as I've said several times on the show, this is another place to do it. This would have been the colonial Wilmington that they would have walked into. It might not be something that you've seen specifically on the show, but colonial Wilmington is today represented, or half of it is represented by our site. And so there's an interesting colonial story to be told. And I know you and I have both experienced Outlander fans coming in. They are searching for this colonial history. Outlander's been really instrumental in helping us guide our visitors what Wilmington would have been like, how the story of Outlander fits into the story of Wilmington and colonial Wilmington. We have um, we have fun doing it. It's some fascinating stories. And again, uh, Christine and I always get a bit geeky because we have a colonial jail that just opens up a door to so many stories that can be told on our site. And then there's certainly the irony that it then becomes a site where the rich and powerful are entertained, whether it is the Jamie and Claire's of the day or the William Tryon's or the fictional visit from George Washington. So, um, Christine, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We hope that people will come visit Bergwin Wright and um, come take tours from both of us. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Join us next week on the podcast for a very special episode featuring an interview with Outlander showrunner and executive producer Matt Roberts, who graciously came on the show to talk about recreating North Carolina in Scotland, where the show films, as well as his own trips to North Carolina for research, and what it's like for the show to be staring down the barrel of revisiting the American Revolution on screen. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find the show. Be sure to also follow Bergwin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, for the latest on what we're doing here at the site. This podcast and all the exciting projects we do at the Bergwin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider donating to our mission to further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site by donating at the link in each episode's description or on our website at bergwinwrighthouse.com slash donate and the number one. Thank you so much for supporting us. This podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their support. I'll see you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Bergwin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees 
and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.